blessed Redeemer, I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent, his love is the theme of my song. Redeemed, 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 redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, of the Lamb. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, his child and forever, his child and forever, his child and forever I I'm excited, uh, as we look at John chapter 11 today, to see where we're at in the story uh, and how it falls on this Communion Sunday, uh, because that's what it's all about. And we've, just to bring you up to speed, we have followed Jesus back to uh, Bethany, back to the home of Mary and Martha, where Lazarus had died and was buried. Jesus came, and of course, through his power, raises Lazarus from the dead. And it says that there were many, there were many that observed this miracle. Many had come to mourn with Mary, and and many were there at that uh, miraculous happening. And I don't know about you, but I think that would be a pretty neat thing to observe, the power of God expressed in raising someone uh, from the dead. And so we're going to pick up right after that, because it's interesting to see what happens then. Uh, Once Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's not different than other times when Jesus performed uh, miracles. And look what happens here. If you'll you'll come down to John chapter 11, we'll start our reading uh, there at verse 45. John 11, 45, it says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But... Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. They gathered chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with the disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves and they, as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they may take him. So here we have the situation where uh, Jesus performs that miracle and there's a very, very different response, right? And, and of course, 
You've probably heard the quote that says, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And here we see Jesus Christ performing an amazing miracle of restoration, giving back this man his life. Some that were there, and many, it says, believed on Jesus. This was a, a powerful display that he was who he claimed to be. And at the same time, there were those who ran from there to the Pharisees and the councils, the Sadducees, the scribes, and they relayed the message of what had happened and how many had believed on Jesus. And it's amazing how there is such a different response that comes out of man. I saw it online this past week. There was a picture of a tomato and a, or excuse me, an egg and a potato in a pot. And you could say it this way, the same water that softens the potato hard boils the egg. And so at the end of the sermon, we'll ask which... No, we won't. Okay. All right. So here it is, this contrast that we see. And right at the outset, I want us to point out a few things. First of all, many believe, many believe, and this is, uh, this is seen as a, not a, just an acknowledgement of something that happened. This word used for belief and the, the, the recognition of it is that they put their faith in what Jesus had claimed to be. And remember, remember that this is the whole book, the point of the book of John, that we would know who Jesus is and that we would believe on who he claims to be. But it's interesting that Jesus then becomes this dividing force. And, and let's just say this, in all of history, Jesus is the most controversial figure, the most dividing figure in all of history. And Jesus spoke to that himself. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 10, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. And that's a shocking statement because didn't the angels say peace on earth when he was born? And people would like to pervert that saying and say that Jesus comes to bring peace to all people. But Jesus clarifies that teaching when he says this, I am not come to bring peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. These are shocking words of Jesus, and yet we see it happening in real time as we watch Jesus heal a man who was dead, bring him back to life, and that sharp division comes. Those who would accept Jesus as the Son of God, by faith believe, and others are hardened and turned. And we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these count, this council of Jews hating Jesus so much. How can a figure be so polarizing? Right? No one, it's interesting though, no one denies the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection. It's not that these people go back and tell the Jews and they say, ah, you know, well, you know, he's only in the grave for three days. You know, maybe he regained consciousness. Uh, maybe he was just out of it, right? This isn't special. Nobody denies that. Nobody's trying to explain away the resurrection, right? But they, and, and in fact, it says in verse 47, the chief priests. And the Pharisees, they say, what are we going to do about this? this? If he goes on doing these kind of miracles, everyone is going to believe on him. A commentator named Homer Kent wrote this, The chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, but a heart in rebellion against the authority of God and his word. Let me read that again. The chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, 
Jesus came and performed miracle after miracle. His teaching was clear. His claims were clear. It wasn't that they, didn't, they were confused. It was that there was a heart of rebellion against the authority of God and his word. You know, it's interesting. We, uh, in Sunday school, are getting ready to talk about the flood and Noah's ark. And as a kid, my dad was very captivated by uh, the flood and the ark and the science behind it and the topography and the Grand Canyon, all those things as explained by the flood. And so uh, we watched a lot of different scientists give their explanation of things. And it was just interesting because a lot of them were, were pushing that we would find, if we could find the ark, wouldn't this be amazing? And so I remember you know, grainy pictures of this side of this mountain with this bump, and as you focused up on it, it was half a ship sticking out of the mountain, you know, or at least that's what they said the black and white thing was. And you know what's interesting, though? Even if we were to find Noah's Ark, that is not sufficient to bring a man to salvation, right? Remember what, uh, the, what the rich man said in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar? If you would just send somebody back from the dead, send somebody back to tell them what's on the other side. And Jesus says, no, they actually have the prophets. They have the word of God, and it's an issue of belief and rebellion. And we see that happening right here in this passage of Scripture, where that which would obviously call us to recognize this is not a regular guy. I have never brought anything back from the dead. I've never seen anybody do that, and here he has done it. And there was a promise that that person would come. It wasn't a lack of information. It was a hardness. It was a hardness of heart. By the way, this also magnifies the truth that the Holy Spirit must work in convincing a person's mind of the truth of God's word. Right? So we're, this morning in, in Sunday school, we're talking about people who lived for 900 years. We can't contemplate that, right? Uh, 900 years? And, and they had kids that lived for 900 years? And we, we're, we're reading these genealogies. It's like, hmm, right? How is it that we would train our children diligently here at Calvary Christian School, and you would train them in your home, that that's true? There was a guy named Methuselah who lived for 969 years. Why do we do that? We do that because the Holy Spirit convinces us that this is the truth. And there was an actual man who lived that long, and he was part of God's plan in bringing salvation to us. See, the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary for the heart to be convinced of truth. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus gives a stinging condemnation to the Jews who had the opportunity to see these miracles but refused with a hard heart of unbelief refused to believe listen in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 20 it's speaking of Jesus says then he began to abrade the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not he says woe to thee Chorazin woe to thee Bethsaida for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were pagan cities. And Jesus is saying, if I had done these works with the Gentiles, they would have believed. But, 
But you have rebelled and you have hardened your heart. He goes on, he says, But I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, by the way, that was the place of his first miracle, right? The, the, the wedding, the Cain of, Gal, uh, Cain of Galilee. He, he, he says, Woe unto thee, or thou, Capernaum, which were exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Look what's happening. Jesus is being very clear in his teaching. He's saying, you have hardened your heart to reject what is so logical. Right? You have hardened your heart. You have rebelled against simple truth. And if these things had been done in, in the... Sodom and Gomorrah is the most wicked place we can imagine or think of. In biblical history. And Jesus says, if I had come to Sodom and done these things, it would still be around today because they would have repented. By the way, this is a, for parents, let me just tell you, this should be a warning. We can harden our kids to the truth if we're not careful. I say this many times. Calvary Christian School can be one of the most dangerous places in Myrtle Beach for your child to be. And that is that they would hear the word of God over and over. They'd hear the gospel over and over again. And they would just callous themselves day in and day out to the teaching of God's word. By the way, there's no other way to heaven except through the gospel of Christ. And if a child hardens his heart to the gospel of Christ, there is nothing else out there that can save him. For a student who goes to a school that rejects the gospel and doesn't allow it. They don't have that opportunity to build that callus up and maybe the Lord would use Sunday school or a church service or a relative to hit them with the gospel later in life and it's almost as if they have a better chance than that Christian school student who has just been hardened for 10, 12 years to the gospel. So what's the key? Well, we actually sang it earlier. We said, help our unbelief. God, you must do this work. You must break the hard and stony ground. I hope you pray that for your children. They're hard-hearted. You may have thought they were hard-headed, but actually they're born rebelling against God's word, and we must pray that God will break their heart and teach them the word, and then we must live it before them in a way that shows that this is worth giving your life to. I want to see two things about what happens here in this chapter. First of all, I want to see the sovereign plan of God. This is amazing, right? We were just talking about God's sovereignty on Wednesday night in the chapter, and it was a lively discussion, so I get the final word today. All right. All those who are here should have left. Okay. Anyway, here we go. So look at verse 47. It says, They gathered the chief, they gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees together, and they're, they're, what should we do? This man is doing these miracles. And by the way, don't you realize that the, the Passover is coming, and there's going to be a ton of people coming into Jerusalem? What would happen if he were to do something like this in front of millions? Right? And I want to see, first of all, that God orchestrates the plan of salvation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are working overtime to bring about what they think will be a good solution to their personal problems. By the way, they're not thinking for the health of, of, of Israel. They're thinking for their own power, as we see. And they're setting into motion a plan that is totally demonic, and at the same time, it's totally God. Right? 
They are putting into, in, into effect this plan that we will kill Jesus. And God is sitting in heaven saying, things are going right according to how I planned. God is in control. God is sovereign even over the evil working of men. In God's sovereignty, he can even use the unrighteousness of man to praise him, the Bible teaches us. And though these leaders are concerned with one thing, their own influence and their own power. By the way, things haven't changed, have they? People who would get out on the airways and try to convince you that they are doing you a favor and working for you. I got a letter this week from the president. I didn't even know he knew I existed. And he told me that he had kept his promises, right, of things that I had received before he was even in office. Does this man care for me? People who come out and and would promote that they care for you and, and care for our country, just watch as they make decisions that will allow them to hold on to power and hold on to influence. Guess what? It's no different. This is what these people are doing. You know what they're worried about? They're worried that when Passover comes, there could have been at times more than a million Jews right there in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, as a Jew who followed the, the, the sacred laws and the, the, the days of celebration, would have been right there. And what would happen if he did something amazing in front of these millions of people and they all believed and, get, and he gathered them to himself? You know what Rome would do, Right? Well, Rome would come down and crush that, but Rome would take away our part. You see how it says that? It says they take away both our place and nation. Rome did have a reputation for squashing rebellion. Pilate had a reputation for squelching rebellion. And not too many years after Jesus returns to heaven, there was a massive leveling of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. And so we have this... This, the, they're, they're worried that they will lose their influence and their power. And God says, I will use that to bring about the greatest miracle in history. By the way, think of the hypocrisy of this. These are the same priests that would give great sums of money to the temple. These are priests who would wear the fine religious clothing. These are people who would follow their traditions to a T and condemn fellow countrymen for being sinners because they didn't follow their traditions. These same men are meeting in premeditating murder of the most innocent man in history. Do you see how wicked the heart of man can be? While touting his own goodness, he is trying to kill the one good thing in this world, his God. In one sense, Jesus was not put to death by sinners, but by righteous, quotes, right? Righteous people. Why was Jesus' death so important to them? Well, you see that they are trying to grasp for their power. But yet, this is God's sovereign, meaning God is in control. God is not the author of evil. He never, he never encourages murder. And yet he is such a powerful God that he can take the wickedness of these men and orchestrate it to bring about his plan that he put into play before the creation of the world. What an amazing God he is. Number two, I want to see a sovereign pronouncement. A sovereign pronouncement. So a proclamation 
of God's sovereign plan of salvation comes out of one of the most hypocritical and wicked men alive in that day. As these leaders are trying to figure out what to do to save their skin, the high priest steps forward and says something very interesting. Look what he says. Verse 49, And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. So he stands up and he's got this brilliant speech to give. And he says this, listen, it's the, 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 the solution is so simple. He has to die. He has to die so that we can preserve the nation. But tell you what, God is even in control of evil men. God is in control of evil men in the sense that Caiaphas, as a wicked hypocrite, still proclaimed the life-giving gospel that you had to come to understand and trust in to be saved. This is our God. In, in, in just a few days, he will sanctimoniously rip his garments in front of Jesus. Right? Because of the, he'd call him a blasphemer. Caiaphas would rip his garments calling Jesus a blasphemer. So, so listen, Caiaphas right now is plotting Jesus' death before Jesus' trial. You get that, right? The trial was a sham. So they're plotting his death before his trial. Then at his trial, Caiaphas will rip his garments to show how shocked and dismayed he is by the accusations that they paid people to make against Jesus. It sounds like America. Doesn't it? It sounds like the wickedness of man is actually prevalent across the entire globe. But here's what God is doing. God is going to have Caiaphas prophesy, not by his own wisdom, the plan that God is putting into motion. Look what it says there in verse 51. It says, He spoke not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus, Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one children of God that were scattered abroad. Do you realize that it is through the cross that Jesus is exalted? And here Caiaphas, just wanting to get rid of this nuisance, get rid of this threat, is actually helping bring out the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So this is a prophecy of atonement. Caiaphas makes a statement here that sounds good to him, and it's pragmatic, and it's murderous in its intent. However, the deep truths that are contained in the statement speak of God's plan of salvation that he had purposed before Caiaphas was born, before Adam and Eve ever sinned. That one should die as a substitutionary death for others. And so I want us to, we'll end our time in, in John 11, from there it talks about how Jesus will go away from Jerusalem for a time. And the next time we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we'll be on something called the triumphal entry. Okay, And, and as he prepares to be tried and murdered and crucified. So Jesus steps away. By the way, that doesn't come till the end of the book of John. We still have a lot of time to go. So even though we missed that for Easter this year, we might get there in a couple years. All right, so... So what I'd like to do right now is actually 
as we prepare to take the Lord's table, allow these truths that we've seen in John 11 to bring to us that time of meditation on the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about the Day of Atonement, this was the time when that high priest would take that sacrificial lamb and would kill it and take its blood and would go into that very sacred place, the holiest of holies, to the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God with his people. And right between the angel's wings, there was something called a what? A mercy seat. And the blood of that innocent lamb was sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for, in a temporary way, atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. Caiaphas is about to do that in a few days. This is what the Day of Atonement was. And that was all just pointing to the day when a real lamb, not a real lamb, the real lamb of God, would come and have his blood shed for the nation. And in this passage, it says, not that nation only, but all those who will be gathered together. So I want to look at the doctrine of atonement and just understand a few things as we prepare to take of the Lord's table. First of all, Christ's obedience in life is necessary for our salvation. Jesus Christ's work, the primary work of redemption is not on us. It's not what we can do. It's not what we can say. It's not what we can muster together to offer God. The primary work of redemption is God the Father doing the work. So we would say it this way, the work of atonement, Christ's life and death on our behalf, is done by God primarily for God. By God, for God. There is an application of this work that takes place that comes to us, and it's called eternal salvation. But let's just remember this. The atonement is God providing a lamb, killing a lamb, taking that blood, sprinkling it in a sense on his own mercy seat because of the relationship that he has to himself. We don't typically think of things in that that way. We think of salvation being provided for us. And that is the byproduct of something that God does for himself. There's an application to us that is eternal salvation, but only because of the definite event in the relationship between the Father and the Son. This event, Christ's death, secured our eternal salvation. So the necessity of Jesus' life cannot be overlooked. Payment for our sin would only bring us to zero, right? Payment would only bring us out of guilt, but it would not give us perfection. And so Jesus' perfect life, which will then be put on our account, gives us not only sinlessness, it gives us perfect perfect acceptability before God. And so as we... As we read through John and we study his life, let's just recognize how important this is for our salvation. Jesus did not need to live a perfect life for his own sake. He had already enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father from eternity past. However, he comes and he fulfills all righteousness and he gives that righteousness to us through this substitutionary atonement. His life is substituted. His life of sinlessness is substituted for our life of sinfulness. 
By the way, you can approach that equation the opposite way. Our life of sinfulness was then placed on Jesus Christ, and we were given his sinless life. First of all, then, is the Christ's work of obedience is necessary for the atonement. But secondly, Christ's suffering is necessary for the atonement. I'd like to look at four aspects of Christ's suffering. And I think we can understand the first one, and that is physical suffering and death. We can understand that. Jesus suffered physically just as you and I would under the same situation. Jesus felt pain like we would feel pain. When Jesus hung on that cross, his body was not like, you know, divine in the sense that it didn't feel pain and he could do that. And he just did it as a placeholder. No, Jesus experienced the great physical suffering of death. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was scourged. His beard was pulled out. A, pl- a crown of thorns was crushed into his skull. Nails through his hands and feet. A cross which brought about asphyxiation and slow and painful death. We can identify with those things because we suffer physically and we would feel the same pain. But I would just want to say that there's a whole lot more than that. I don't think we can necessarily identify with in the same way. By the way, we read this morning from Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This is the physical suffering of Jesus on our behalf. But then the second thing I want to see, not just the physical side, but the pain of bearing sin. The pain of bearing our sin is not something I think that we can as easily identify with. Jesus suffered rejection and ridicule and hatred, constantly questioned, lied about, maligned, falsely accused. Isaiah 53 says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't think anything of him. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. This, this, is the, this is the outcast. Beyond the thought of sin and evil that he resisted and conquered in his life, now all of that times all of us was put on him. Earlier we sang this, every bitter thought, every evil deed, staining his blood-stained brow. You just need to think about your own life, and it is overwhelming that someone would take the consequences of your sin. But then you multiply that by every person who is trusted in Jesus Christ. We cannot imagine what that would have been like. It says later in that song, Bearing the awesome weight of sin... Jesus the righteous was made sin for us who knew no sin. He suffered physically. He suffered bearing the pain or the pain of bearing sin. But then he suffered something that we would call abandonment. Abandonment. Jesus suffered and died alone. All people forsook him, even his own disciples. But far worse than that. His own father, the Trinitarian head, the one with which he had had perfect love and perfect fellowship and perfect communion, he turned away and abandoned Jesus. 
There's a song that we sing often here called His Robes for Mine, and it says this in the last verse. It says, His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He as though I, accursed and left alone. I as though he, embraced and welcomed home. This is the atonement. This is what Christ did on our behalf. This is what we celebrate this morning. And it should be a joyous celebration. But I tell you, it is a joyous celebration to those who give their minds and their hearts to the depth of his suffering on our behalf. Remember what Jesus, and we're about to get this in in, in John 12, it says, He that is forgiven little loveth little, but he that is forgiven much loveth much. Let me just tell you this morning, your ability to enter into the rejoicing of communion, the rejoicing of the Lord's table, is not based on how much sin you have committed. It is based on how much you understand Christ did for you. Really, it comes from how honest you are about the depravity of your own heart and mind. You are wicked. And I don't say that flippantly. You are wicked. You know the struggle of your flesh. And if you're a believer, your spirit is redeemed. And you have a desire to do right. And at the same time, you know there is something in you that is fighting against that and fights against the good and would seek to lead you into sin and anger and wrath and and drunkenness and coping with life through the world's temporary means and not loving your brother and not caring about the salvation of those that you see. Not even being able to get along with your own spouse. Right? It just takes time to focus on your own worldliness that should magnify the atonement, the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lastly, we talk about abandonment, but lastly we'd say this, and we cannot enter into this at all. Jesus Christ bore God's wrath. He suffered being crushed by God. Jesus bore the penalty and the pain of sin. Jesus bore the unfiltered wrath of God against man's sin. He became the object of God the Father's intense hatred for sin and evil. All vengeance of God's wrath that had been stored up since Adam and Eve's sin in the garden All the vengeance of God's holy wrath toward every sin since and going forward is poured out on Jesus. And I don't think we have any clue what that means. This morning we talked about how many people would have been alive before the flood. And how the the definition of that time was that the, the, the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. And out of millions and possibly billions of people on the earth, only Eight obeyed God's word and got on the ark. What about all those people from Adam until Noah? What about all those who did believe on God? Enoch, right? I would say many of Adam's descendants, Seth, the line of Seth. What about their sin? It's interesting, Romans chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there. There's these amazing verses that teach us what God is doing even now. Why are you not dead? 
You have sinned against God. Why has he not killed you? Well, I don't want a God who would kill me. It doesn't matter what you want. You've sinned against a holy God. He said the wages of sin is death. Look at verse 25 of Romans 3. It says, When God hath set forth to be a propitiation, a satisfaction of wrath, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The forbearance of God. Look what it's saying here. Adam and Eve sinned. God for, I don't even know how to say it, forbeared, right? God delays punishment for Adam and Eve's sin. He said, the day you eat of this fruit... Dying, you will die. They died spiritually. They were dying physically. But not only that, they were dying eternally. They were condemned and bound for hell. Why did God not sentence them to hell immediately? Because in His grace and in His mercy, He he was forbearing of their sin until when? Till the substitutionary Lamb of God would come. And then all of that sin from Adam until Jesus... And all that sin from Jesus until you die, without filter, was poured on Christ. And God crushes Christ on the cross and makes that payment that satisfies his wrath. I haven't read anybody who could say it right. I can't say it right, but I don't think we can understand what that is. All I can stand is say, thank you, God. Because eternity of hell for Mark Rowland is not anything I want to meditate on or think about. But Christ took eternity of hell for Mark Rowland and it was poured out on Jesus Christ. And he paid the price for my sin and for your sin. In fact, Romans 3.26 is such a beautiful verse. Then it goes on, it says, To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Can you grasp the gravity of what is being said here? God the just pours out all that unfiltered wrath on sin on Jesus And because he is a just God, not one sin can go unpunished. Not one sin can be swept under the rug. Not one look, not one motive, not one word. All of that must be paid. And so God justly pours out his wrath. But then in return, he becomes what is called in this verse, the justifier of them that believe. You know what that means? It means that if any of you were to stand in heaven including the devil and his angels and anybody from Mark Rowland's past, sibling, parent, neighbor, schoolmate, any of you stood before God and said, he's a sinner, he cannot be here, God would say, no, no, no. I am the justifier of Mark Rowland because I have paid every ounce of penalty for that sin. But he did this and he did that and he said this. God says, no, I have been just. I poured all that wrath out on Jesus. It has been paid. There is no double jeopardy. Payment for sin cannot be made twice and God still be just. 
And so God will look at any accuser, whether it be the devil himself, and say, Mark Rowland, Mark Rowland is perfect. Mark Rowland is righteous. I tell you, when I come to the table of the Lord having those thoughts in my mind, I have no right except for the fact that God says you have every right if you believe in Jesus Christ. If he is your Savior, you are safe from wrath because it has been satisfied. The forbearance of God then, by the way, in Romans 2 and verse 4 it says, Despisest thou the goodness and the forbearance and long-suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? What should you do as you contemplate God's forbearance? The fact that he has not crushed you every time you have violated his word. What should your response be? It is to recognize God's goodness and then to repent. Why would I hold on to anything that Jesus Christ has already paid for? Why did God let you come to an air-conditioned service with beautiful music and kind-hearted people who, who, have, who love you when you lived the way you did last week? It's called the goodness of God, and as we recognize those things... We don't take them for granted. We say, God, forgive me for my sin. By the way, as we come to the table of the Lord, we don't come because we've been righteous. You don't come because this was a good week, like you treated your kids good, treated your wife good, everything at work was okay. I think I'm going to take part in this. No, we come because Jesus was good and Jesus was righteous, and he has given that to us by faith. And as we do that, then we come before the Lord, and if there's anything we're holding on to, we repent. At the end of the service, we'll sing about the cross, and we'll take just a few moments to confess. Not because Jesus will need to be re-crucified and paid for it, but because you need to recognize that you should say the same thing about your sin that God has, and that magnifies then the table of the Lord, that this was done for me, on my behalf. And then my heart should respond in, Lord, here am I. Take me. Help me dedicate everything, my mind, my mouth, my hands, my feet, my kids, my wife, my job. Help me, help me dedicate that to you because you are such a good God. I'd just like to end with this. As we come to the table of the Lord, our sin has created four needs in our life. There are four things that everyone in this room needs desperately because of sin. First of all, we deserve death as the penalty of sin. Second of all, we deserve to bear God's wrath. Thirdly, we are separated from God by our sin. And fourthly, we are in bondage to sin. These are the great effects of sin in our life. It's penalty, the wrath, the punishment, separation, and bondage. And this is who our Jesus is. And this is why we celebrate, because of what he has done on our behalf.
First of all, we deserve to die, but Christ is our sacrifice. We celebrate his death because it was a sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews 9.26 says this, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself because death was my penalty. Second of all, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So Christ is our propitiation. He's our sacrifice. And how do we know that sacrifice was acceptable? That sacrifice was made acceptable to God in the sense that God raised him from the dead and exalted him. And so Christ is called our propitiation. Propitiation is a satisfaction of wrath made through payment. God had to be paid. And so he provided his own payment. The removal of wrath through payment is what it means when we talk about Christ as our propitiation. 1 John 4, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent he, God, sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of wrath for our sins. So now we are, as Romans 3 says, we are justified freely by his grace through this redemption. Number three, we are separated from God by our sin, and so Christ is become our reconciliation. Have you ever been at odds with somebody and then had peace made? And all the married people understand exactly what we're saying, right? Here's the problem. Sometimes we come back into a relationship with our spouse by simply ignoring what separated us. God can't do that. Sin separates us, and God never just gets over it. And time doesn't heal that wound. And it can't just be ignored. And so Christ becomes our reconciliation. Reconciliation is a term that's often used in court for payment, right? You will make reconciliation. You see, our peace with God, that separation that happened by our sin, was removed, and we are now able to be in a right relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. That means that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Right? And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God took our sin and put it on Christ so that we, through his payment, we are right with him. You can go boldly to the throne of God today as a believer. You can approach this table that celebrates the crucifixion of God himself. Not because of you, but we are reconciled through Christ. Lastly, we are under the bondage to we, are, we were under bondage to sin. Christ has become our redemption. He bought us back from bondage that chained us to destruction. Mark 10:45 For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Freed from sin. Freed from death. Freed from hell. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Colossians 
who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This morning we celebrate Christ as our sacrifice, Christ as our propitiation, Christ as our reconciliation, and Christ as our redemption. I hope that as you come to the table of the Lord this morning, you can come with great freedom and rejoicing, not because you think you've got it together, but because you know you didn't. But Christ did the work of atonement. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we just want to take a few moments here for you to be right with God. What does it mean to be right with God? It means that if you don't know him as Savior, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you admit that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God himself come to man to pay for sin? Do you believe that he died on the cross to offer the payment to God for your sin? And will you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Are you right with God? Believer, I would ask you this. Is there sin that you would hold on to your life that Christ paid for? That God is satisfied in his wrath toward that you would hold on to and refuse to let it come to the service and be made right? Confess. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Let's take just a moment in quiet contemplation.